This episode is brought to you by the Inspire Collection by Kalia. Ladies, your workouts are about to get an upgrade. The new Inspire leggings by Kalia are exactly what you want when it comes to activewear. It's their most versatile collection yet. They look good, feel good, and stay put. Using Lycra Adaptive Fiber, it compresses and molds to the body like a second skin. And it's unbelievably stretchy, so you can move however you want. Shop the Inspire Collection by Kalia now, exclusively at Dick's Sporting Goods. With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Galkayo, Somalia, 2009. Galkayo, like most of Somalia at this time, was an unpredictable and lawless place ruled by warring factions. Danger and violence were constant, especially at night. In the middle of the city was a white three-story house. It was protected by an eight-foot-tall cement wall with barbed wire attached, an addition made by the current residents. Inside the house was an American who we'll call Mark Wilson. As the night wore on, he tried not to let the gunshots in the distance rattle him. Wilson arrived in Somalia only a few months earlier, but he'd already taken major steps toward establishing a tuna fishing business on behalf of his boss, a criminal overlord named Paul LaRue. Even though Somalia was an unpredictable death trap, one of Wilson's biggest obstacles was a fellow co-worker. LaRue had dispatched a South African man who was often drunk and barely left the confines of the compound. But Wilson kept his complaints to himself. It was easier to just put up with the South African than face telling LaRue that one of his employees was incompetent. His boss's temper was always on a hair trigger. Wilson jumped up. The distant gunshots were now right outside. He dashed up to the roof. What he found was both a relief and a horror show. The gunfire was coming from the drunk South African. Wilson tackled the South African to the ground. They both laid there, breathing hard. From his first day on the job, Wilson had known that protecting Paul LaRue's criminal empire wouldn't be easy. But the biggest threat facing the company wasn't law enforcement or violent rivals. It was the company itself. I'm Howell Hargett. And I'm Kate Leonard, and this is Kingpins, a ParCast original. Every Friday, we journey inside the ranks of organized crime rings, from street gangs to mafiosos, to understand how a kingpin or queenpin rises to the top of the underworld. And why they fall. 
As we follow the lives of infamous crime bosses, we'll explore how money and power changed them and how it changed the community around them. You can find episodes of Kingpins and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Kingpins for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Kingpins in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. This is our second episode on international crime mastermind and encryption genius, Paul LaRue. Last week, we discussed how LaRue made a fortune selling prescription pain medication through online pharmacies. By early 2009, his pharmacy network, RX Limited, was bringing in hundreds of millions of dollars. But LaRue wasn't content to just rake in money slinging medication. He wanted to expand. At age 33, LaRue had his hands in everything from gold to guns to illicit drugs. This week, however, we're going to focus primarily on LaRue's doomed tuna fishing venture in Somalia and how this particular business idea eventually led to his downfall. Around 2008, LaRue began employing military contractors to execute his increasingly nefarious business dealings. One of his early hires was American veteran Mark Wilson. Wilson quickly realized that LaRue was dangerous, but by that point, he was already trapped. After he found himself babysitting a hostage named Steve Hahn in 2008, Wilson was hungry to get involved with a more legitimate part of the business. So, in early 2009, LaRue dispatched Wilson to Somalia to establish a tuna fishing business. LaRue's basic idea was on brand for him, genius and dangerously ambitious. Somalia had descended into lawlessness, and with violent pirates patrolling the coast, no foreign fishermen had been able to access the tuna that thrived in the waters just offshore. From LaRue's distant perspective, at his laptop in Zimbabwe, the dangerous mission looked simple. He looked at satellite photos of giant schools of tuna roaming the coast. The disorganized pirates were enough to keep foreigners away, but Somali fishermen didn't have the infrastructure to harvest all the fish themselves. LaRue saw dollar signs on each fish, and he sent Mark Wilson to capture them. Wilson was dispatched to Somalia with clear instructions on how to get the business off the ground. He was told to set up a base camp for a shell company called Southern Ace in Galkayo, a city about 120 miles from the coast. From there, he would import boats and hire them out to local fishermen, who would harvest the tuna. At the same time, Wilson would oversee the construction of a factory and an airstrip on the coast to export the tuna to more lucrative foreign markets. But LaRue's laptop was far away from the dangerous reality Wilson faced on the ground in Somalia. LaRue had neglected to mention that Galkayo was partly located in Galmadug State, a region so volatile that even the United Nations rarely stepped foot in it. 
The president of Galmadug State, Mohammed Warsami Ali, was sometimes forced to handle state business from the safety of Nairobi. Even if Wilson managed to overcome the unpredictable violence in Galkayo, the expansion to the coast presented another problem. The ocean was several hours away by car, and the road was plagued by bandits. But first, Wilson had to track down Muhammad Warsami Ali, the president of Galmadug State. If Wilson wanted to do business anywhere in the state, he would need the president's blessing. Luckily, Wilson found the president fairly easily. It wasn't too common for a white American man to want to start a business in Somalia. It's likely President Ali suspected that Wilson came with some money. He was right. With LaRue's money to back him up and Somalia's corrupt government hungry for cash, Wilson was able to negotiate a favorable deal. Southern Ace was approved to construct factories, water pipelines, and airstrips from Galkayo all the way out to the Somali coast. The company was also approved to put together a fleet of 50 vessels. Those ships would be provided to local fishermen, and in return, Southern Ace would collect a percentage of their catch. In exchange for the freedom to work and build, Galmadug State would hold a 10% stake in Southern Ace. After Wilson had the deal in place, he found a Galmadug native named Liban Mohammed Ahmed to help him navigate the local politics. And it was Ahmed who helped Wilson secure a white three-story house surrounded by an eight-foot wall. After about two months of setting up, Wilson was overwhelmed with optimism. He was grateful to be involved in a legitimate business for once. He had never liked being forced into LaRue's illegal revenge plots, like blackmailing the Han brothers. Maybe LaRue's insane plan could come to fruition, and Wilson could actually be a successful businessman. Then, he got a call from LaRue. Wilson started to report on his current status, but LaRue interrupted him. The tone of his voice made Wilson sit down. LaRue said he needed to speak to him, in person. Wilson was to get on the first flight to Hong Kong, and Wilson knew that whatever LaRue wanted to discuss was no doubt illegal. He started writing down LaRue's instructions. No problem, he could get on a plane. How long should he plan to stay? LaRue dismissed him, no need to stay. Wilson would return to Somalia immediately after the meeting. One 14-hour flight followed almost immediately by another. Then he hung up. When Wilson landed in Hong Kong, he immediately went to a hotel restaurant to meet LaRue. He was surprised to find the restaurant wasn't open yet, but LaRue gestured for him to sit at a table. LaRue looked exactly as he remembered, fat and casually dressed. And his behavior was the same, too impatient and rude. When a waiter approached, LaRue barked in his unique South African accent, F off, we're talking. LaRue got straight to the point. Wilson was spending too much money on security and payroll. They needed to find a way to make the business profitable quickly. He already had some plans in motion to expand the business beyond fishing. He wanted to use the Somali coast as a port to receive pharmaceuticals that would then be sold through RX Limited. 
Wilson knew better than to protest, but he didn't like the new direction. He'd been attracted to the fishing business because it seemed like a legitimate, albeit dangerous, project. Not anymore. As Wilson got on a plane back to Africa, he thought perhaps he'd be able to make LaRue see reason. It would be many years before a complex business like the fishing venture so much as broke even, never mind showing a profit. But if he could show LaRue their physical progress on the ground in Somalia, maybe he could keep the project on track. Wilson kicked the project into high gear by ingratiating himself with the local leaders. He told journalist Evan Ratliff, I had daily meetings with elders, people from the area, neighbors, everything. You've got to keep everybody happy. But moving more quickly had an unintended consequence. The more people who were aware of the project, the more people there were to pay off. To avoid any more unwanted attention, Wilson brought on more security for himself and Southern Ace. Always looking to keep costs low, LaRue contributed by sending two members of his own security team to Somalia. Their performance was spotty. One of the new security agents referred to himself as Agent Orange after the orange Valium pills he was perpetually zonked out on. For his part, Wilson enlisted the help of several dozen local men with military experience. The loyalty of these men was questionable, but Wilson felt he had no choice. Wilson's next contact with LaRue in May 2009 was a set of specific, aggressive instructions on how to secure the compound in Galcayo. The level of protection suggested that LaRue was expecting a major military assault. But the source of the security equipment was what Wilson found most disturbing. LaRue mentioned that he had relationships with arms dealers in the former Soviet republics. There was an international embargo against selling arms to Somalia, and LaRue apparently didn't mind breaking it. With a few strokes on his keyboard, LaRue had made Wilson a successful project manager. Now he was about to make him an international arms dealer. Coming up, LaRue forces Wilson down an even more dangerous path. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Now back to the story. In 2009, Paul LaRue sent Mark Wilson, one of his top lieutenants, to Somalia to set up a fishing company. Wilson managed to overcome the volatile conditions in Somalia and set up a functioning business. But only a few months into the process, 
LaRue was frustrated with how much money the venture was already burning. As a way to offset those costs, LaRue came up with a fouler, more profitable plan. It included shipping heavy weapons to his base in Somalia, violating an international arms embargo. Ignoring the embargo would undo years of careful negotiation and coordination among numerous governments. LaRue's grotesque disregard for the law was nothing new, but it was disheartening for Mark Wilson. He could handle the danger of random violence in a foreign country, but he did not want to be part of LaRue's criminal empire. Unfortunately, it was already too late to escape. Law enforcement all over the world, and especially the DEA, were becoming more interested in LaRue's activities. In the summer of 2009, the Philippine Drug Enforcement Agency, in partnership with the United States DEA, got a warrant to raid one of LaRue's RX Limited call centers in Manila. Filipino agents seized several computers and detained several employees. It seemed like a promising step forward, but... The Philippine DEA didn't find any evidence of criminal activity. They released everyone and returned the seized equipment. They would have to find another way in. LaRue had won this round, but in the future, he would be even more careful. LaRue gave all his employees email addresses on an encrypted server he maintained himself. He became more suspicious of new people and even his existing employees. He limited his physical meetings with associates. But his most powerful protection was a very simple shield, his own family members and a few of his closest allies. He brought them into the company with the title of Dummy. LaRue came up with that title himself. He used the names of dummies on the deeds and titles of his real estate holdings, on incorporation records and bank accounts, for everything from his yacht to his gold mine in Africa. LaRue's own name was almost nowhere on paper. And he wasn't always transparent with his dummies about the risk they were taking. As law enforcement turned up the pressure, LaRue found it harder and harder to trust anyone. And at the first hint of betrayal, he was ready to strike. No one was safe, not even his family. In the summer of 2009, LaRue's cousin, Matthew Smith, was asleep in his home in Bulawayo, Zimbabwe. But he wasn't sleeping well. He'd been on the run from his cousin for a few months. Matthew had been in Manila when the Han brothers were arrested and held hostage in late 2008. After he witnessed LaRue's revenge, Matthew knew he wasn't safe. He immediately fled to Hong Kong. Shortly after he arrived at his Hong Kong hotel, his room phone rang. When Matthew picked up, he heard LaRue's voice on the other end, asking why he ran away. A few days later, safely ensconced in a friend's apartment in Singapore, Matthew worked up the courage to message LaRue online. He told his cousin that he'd fled because he was afraid LaRue was hunting him. LaRue typed back a smiley face emoji. Then he wrote, Buddy, if I was hunting you, you would be dead. In a later online chat, 
LaRue did explain why his cousin was in his crosshairs. Matthew had accepted $52,000 for company business and had failed to repay it. $52,000 meant nothing to LaRue, who was worth hundreds of millions of dollars. But as LaRue said, it is a matter of honor. It is the principle here. It is a shame you can't see that. In the ensuing months, Matthew was able to avoid LaRue. He'd been able to convince himself that his cousin was just messing with him. Surely he wouldn't attack a family member. Matthew was very, very wrong. One spring night in 2009, as he was fast asleep, a petrol bomb was thrown through his bedroom window. When Matthew opened his eyes, his curtains were on fire. He hurried to the broken window, but before he laid eyes on his attacker, four gunshots rang out. Matthew managed to escape, but barely. One of the bullets passed just centimeters from his head. LaRue never took responsibility for the attack, but Matthew knew that no one else would have sent gunmen to his home. There was no doubting what LaRue had become, a ruthless killer. Back in Somalia, Mark Smith was completely unaware that his boss had begun turning on his own family. He knew LaRue was a killer, but he thought he could reason with him. At least LaRue hadn't yet acted on his plan to turn the tuna fishing business into a drug distribution hub. The Somalian enterprise was still burning money on security costs and construction materials, but most of Wilson's interactions with his boss were positive. LaRue always gave Wilson whatever funds or equipment he asked for. Wilson attributed much of his success to something very simple, his skills with Microsoft Excel. As much as LaRue fancied himself as an international criminal mogul, he was still a coder at heart. And like most coders, LaRue was all about executing a plan. By the end of 2009, he finally told Wilson to apply for a license to import and export prescription drugs in Somalia. But there was more. He didn't just plan to use the Galcayo base as a shipping hub. He wanted to turn the compound into a greenhouse to grow illegal drugs. And there would be no stalling this time. LaRue sent over exhaustive plans for the operation, spelling out everything from the pressure of the irrigation system to how much space to leave between rows of plants. He used code names for all the drugs he wanted to experiment with. Poppies had the code name carrots, cannabis was beans, and coca was mustard. Of course, a new illegal operation meant more weapons. In November of 2009, LaRue sent Wilson a long list of the weaponry he had arranged to send to Somalia. It included 40 grenade launchers, 10 unguided incendiary bombs, and 50 thermobaric warheads. LaRue's specific plans were becoming more grandiose, and they were accompanied by ramblings that were downright insane. He wrote about wanting to seize control of an entire nation, or, at the very least, create his own country so that he would have complete impunity. LaRue's business wasn't really about making money. It was about gaining unlimited power.
Up next, LaRue's thirst for power leads to his downfall. Now, back to the story. By the beginning of 2010, 37-year-old criminal mogul Paul LaRue had become completely erratic. He was stocking up on military weapons and telling employees about his visions of taking over an entire country. And then LaRue blindsided his lieutenant, Mark Wilson, with a plan to turn his fishing business into an illegal drug lab. That was the last straw for Wilson. He'd only taken the assignment in Somalia because he thought it was a legitimate business enterprise. Instead, LaRue had made him into an international arms dealer, drug trafficker, and now the proprietor of a narcotics greenhouse. It was time for an exit strategy. Near the end of 2010, Wilson woke up everyone at the Galcayo compound in the middle of the night. He told them his mother was having a medical emergency back in the United States, and he was going to take a UN flight out of Somalia in the morning. He was the head honcho in Somalia, so none of them could stop him. As the cargo plane took off, Wilson breathed a sigh of relief. He was finally leaving LaRue and his shady dealings in the past. But complete freedom was still a long way off. About a week later, Wilson called LaRue to officially resign. He told him, It's getting out of hand. It's crossing lines that I don't want to cross. I'm done. LaRue uncharacteristically kept his cool. He told Wilson he was fine with the departure. But of course, LaRue was known for telling his employees one thing and then doing the other. Without Wilson, the business in Somalia quickly fell apart. LaRue decided to put Agent Orange, the Valium-addicted security officer, in charge of things in Galcayo. Money went missing. Employees weren't being paid on time or at all. When LaRue questioned Agent Orange, he blamed the man who suddenly cut and ran, Mark Wilson. So LaRue did what was now his habit. He ordered Wilson's execution. Wilson had been keeping in touch with a few friends still in Somalia, but his contacts suddenly went quiet. Eventually, one of them responded via an anonymous email address. They wrote, Hey buddy, sorry, but I can't talk to you. You gotta understand, I don't want to end up dead. Another friend of Wilson's who was working for LaRue in Manila confirmed it. Wilson had a price on his head and one of his old roommates had taken on the hit. Fittingly, the man coming after him was named Hunter. Wilson knew Hunter was a trained sniper and a proven killer. There was only one thing to do. He called LaRue. At first, LaRue did his usual song and dance, claiming that he didn't know anything about a contract on Wilson, but Wilson wasn't buying it. He told LaRue, give me a reason, tell me why. I want to know if I died for an illusion or for a stupid reason. Or maybe you're mentally ill, I don't know. LaRue finally dropped the facade. He told Wilson about the missing money. But Wilson was prepared. He had documents accounting for every penny during his time in Somalia. He sent them to LaRue, 
along with records of all the serial numbers of every bill LaRue had ever sent him. Then, just to be safe, Wilson navigated to the CIA website. He sent a message to the generic address on the site saying he had information about an international criminal named Paul LaRue. Ultimately, LaRue called off the hit, but Wilson's impulsive email had already set in motion a chain of events that would take LaRue off the board. Ever since the raid on his Manila call center in the summer of 2009, LaRue had been on high alert regarding law enforcement. So in October 2011, after the fiasco with Wilson was over, he made plans to relocate from the Philippines to Brazil. But like everything Paul did, the strategy behind the move was complicated. LaRue made several preliminary trips to Brazil through the end of 2011. The trips had a singular purpose, to have sex with as many Brazilian women as possible. Although the Brazilian government held an extradition treaty with the United States, they provided special protections to Brazilian citizens and the parents of Brazilian children. By the time LaRue moved to Brazil permanently in May 2012, he'd already gotten a 22-year-old woman pregnant. He also arrived with his Filipino girlfriend, who was also pregnant. She gave birth within just a few weeks of their arrival, making this baby a Brazilian citizen too. But this plan was only useful if LaRue stayed in Brazil. And although he was playing it safe, he was about to receive an offer he couldn't refuse. Just a few months after moving to Brazil, LaRue's cell phone rang. He didn't recognize the number, but he answered anyway. The voice on the other end surprised him. It was Wilson, and he was calling with an opportunity. He'd made some new relationships in the drug world and knew that LaRue might be interested. He told LaRue, they are big people, big deals, Colombians, hundreds and hundreds of kilos. Specifically, Wilson mentioned a cocaine dealer named Pepe, and Pepe wanted to meet LaRue. LaRue had been trying to make contact with the South American cartel for years, but thus far hadn't been successful. Though he had already dipped his toes into the drug business with the Somalia Grow operation, this was the bigger, more lucrative deal he'd been looking for. He told Wilson to move forward. When Wilson hung up, he breathed a huge sigh of relief. The call had been a step in a DEA sting operation. Wilson's fateful email to the CIA had finally found its way to the right inbox, and now he was working to bring LaRue down. Wilson wasn't surprised at how quickly LaRue took the bait. Even though they hadn't parted on good terms, LaRue had always assumed Wilson would come crawling back to him for money. According to Wilson, LaRue knows what people are capable of when they are really in need of money. Most of his employees are willing to cross the line every time. The trap had been set. Now, Wilson just had to get LaRue to walk into it. Wilson arranged a meeting between LaRue and Pepe, the fictional Colombian cocaine trafficker. Pepe would be played by a DEA informant familiar with the Colombian narcotics world. 
Wilson set the meeting in Liberia, where Pepe was supposedly interested in building a meth lab. Liberia also had an extradition agreement with the United States. While Wilson was confirming the final details, he made sure to remind LaRue that Pepe wanted to meet boss to boss, just the two of them. The appeal to LaRue's ego worked. He booked a flight to Liberia. On September 25, 2012, Paul LaRue landed in Monrovia, Liberia. Wilson insisted on treating LaRue to a suite in their budget hotel. He delighted in the irony. The suite was actually being paid for by the U.S. government. It had been outfitted with cameras before LaRue's arrival. The following morning, Wilson and LaRue met for breakfast before their meeting with Pepe. LaRue had a favor to ask Wilson. He asked, is there a laundry service here? The hotel charges crazy money. It's like two bucks for a shirt here. I'm cheap, dude. Paul LaRue was about to meet with a Colombian drug lord and negotiate a deal worth tens of millions of dollars. And here he was taking umbrage with a $2 dry cleaning fee. Later that afternoon, Wilson and LaRue arrived at a different hotel to meet with Pepe. Next to the room where the meeting would take place, DEA agents were stationed to listen to every move. LaRue and Pepe discussed all the angles of their deal, how LaRue would obtain and deliver meth, how he laundered money, and how he preferred payment in gold or diamonds instead of cash. Pepe was even able to get LaRue to discuss his experience in arms dealing, adding another felony charge to the list. After the meeting, LaRue and Wilson returned to their own hotel. Less than an hour later, Liberian National Security officers stormed into LaRue's suite. He immediately closed his laptop lid, activating his own encryption software. After he was taken to the local jail, DEA agents finally swooped in and took LaRue into custody. When he realized he was being extradited, he said, I apologize in advance, but I do not want to get on your plane. Despite years of precautions, LaRue had been apprehended. Ultimately, only one thing could overcome his obsessive caution, his desire for power. And once LaRue was on the plane en route to the U.S., the reality of his situation sunk in. All his power was gone. He needed a way out, a way to at least make his punishment less severe than it could be. His options were limited, but he had options. To the shock of the agents on board, LaRue agreed to cooperate with the DEA. He signed away his Miranda rights and agreed to turn over his phone and laptop to authorities. A DEA agent said, to Paul, everything is a negotiation. LaRue's strategy was ingenious. Since he quickly agreed to a plea deal on just a few charges, he was able to confess to his worst crimes without any fear of prosecution. Paul LaRue's criminal empire was vast spanning the entire globe. His crimes are far more numerous than we were able to recount here. LaRue had made contacts in North Korean meth production and sold stolen cocaine. He was involved in sex trafficking and money laundering. 
and he ordered the murder of many people who stood in his way. The United States government used LaRue's information to arrest and prosecute other members of his syndicate, including Joseph Hunter, the man who was assigned to kill Mark Wilson, and Moran Oz, the RX Limited call center manager. LaRue himself has been in federal custody for about seven years, but he still hasn't been officially sentenced. Journalist Evan Ratliff predicts the sentence to be determined in the next couple of years, and that it's likely LaRue will receive 10 years. But it's possible he could be free again in 2022. Thanks again for listening to Kingpins. For more information on Paul LaRue, among the many sources we used, we found Evan Ratliff's book, The Mastermind, particularly helpful in our research. You can find more episodes of Kingpins and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Kingpins for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Kingpins on Spotify, just open the app and type Kingpins in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Kingpins was created by Max Cudler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cudler, sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Kingpins was written by Hannah McIntosh, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Kate Leonard and Howell Hargett.